This is the best of daily devotions by Pastor Tim Dodson from Believer's Church in Menominee, Wisconsin. Go to jfbelievers.com for more information. Today we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 20. John 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. Therefore these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew came with Philip, and they told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Most certainly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls, Into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, where my servant will will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, as I mentioned previously, we're paying close attention in this passage to what Jesus did and what Jesus said in these chapters leading up to the cross. For in these passages are a catalyst which drove the people from Hosanna, save us now we beg, to crucify him, crucify him. So with that in mind, I'm going to slow way down in the next passages in order to view in detail the impact, if you will, of these very powerful words in the text before us. Beginning with this simple yet profound statement that we read herein, quote, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, end quote. Now in these verses, Jesus dealt with the practical acts of salvation and discipleship as well as the costs of both. So let us look firstly at the issue of salvation alone. Whatever vernacular you want to use today, born again, reborn, saved, whatever, the result of such an event, and that is what it is, an event, a a transformation, not merely a decision, if you will, it is to be a profound change of life, a profound change of one's living, one's priorities, and one's passions. It seems that despite the request of these men to see Jesus, They were, however, not granted such an audience. The response of Jesus, as well as his very actions here, clearly play into the profound and radical changes that must occur in people's hearts in order to truly be born again. Now, please note that this issue, it's not some trivial detail in the grand scope of Christianity. For we all have witnessed individuals who have made the verbal and at least the outward profession of faith, and even perhaps they walked some aspect of faith for months and and even years, only to eventually collapse in a pile of spiritual and personal rubble. So one cannot help but wonder, yes, even righteously fear this potential before us. It is critical to have a true understanding and a scriptural clarity on these issues for the cost of failing to grasp the facts on this subject, well, can be eternally damning. 
There are many people today that will come seeking Jesus. Now, while such a premise is seemingly simple and beautiful, there lies within it a world of broad ideas in the midst of narrow alleys and mountainous switchbacks. And what I mean by that is that to seek Jesus can possibly mean 15 different things to 15 different people. It seems then the question that begs to be asked is what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be saved? And that naturally leads to the ultimate inquiry, am I actually saved? And therefore, how do I know for sure? You see, if one could successfully manage to muddy this pool, to render the answer to this question void of clarity and just to surrender it up to ambiguity, it would be a coup of the highest degree. You see, you imagine the scenario here. The enemy would therefore need not battle to squelch the rise of churches and religion. He would not need to erase spirituality or, or man's innate search for such. He wouldn't need to destroy all the believers in God or burn all the Bibles. He need only to guide the seekers to false conclusions to their questions, to establish a false foundation, which, you know, is surprisingly easier than one might think. For man comes to the table in such situations almost always with criteria, with parameters, with preconceptions and childhood ideologies, worldly limits, fleshly precursors. And the scriptural facts are run then through these sieves, and what comes out the other side is ultimately, well, my truth. Now we know that for centuries, man's science was vastly askew because the world at that time held that the sun rotated around the earth. And as long as we held to the inclusion of that self-declared fact, if you will, it mattered very little what we did there in science land or what other truths were declared, what passions and thirsts were exercised in pursuit of scientific truth because, look, all of it was wrong. Wrong because it was at its core based upon a faulty, a faulty foundation, a mathematical miscalculations on a rocket's path to the moon, well, that may appear fine at first because it's such a long way out there. It may look good for most of the journey, but you know, the further one travels then, as you approach the moon, the more distant you become from the ultimate goal of the moon. Therefore, when it comes time to pull the trigger, to grasp your long sought after goal, you find you've missed the moon by a million miles. Why? Because the wrong data was used way back when your journey began. So I ask you the question again, how do you know that you're indeed born again? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Is curiosity enough? Is a seeking spirit enough? A religious thirst? I mean, need I only intellectually believe, quote-unquote, that Jesus is the Messiah to board that eternal train to heaven? Is our entrance into the family of God decided upon, you know, like a TV game show in which the right answer will sweep us into the winner's circle? 
What were those people who were out there on that road that day who were shouting Hosanna, Hosanna? What were they? I mean, were they true faithful Christians in the making? Or were they merely fans, groupies, maybe customers? What are we seeking when we come to that moment in our lives? His wisdom? His philosophy? Are we just seeking Jesus' stuff? Or are we looking for Jesus in the acknowledgement that we are lost in every sense of the word without him? These men who came to see Jesus, what were they looking for in him? On the surface, I think it seems like a strange response by Christ to the overtures of these men. They came to see Jesus, but Jesus answers their presence more than he answers their request. You see, Jesus obviously knew their hearts, despite anything that issued forth from their lips that day. After all, words are easy. Words are cheap in any generation. I mean, people can say anything, and in truth, such often fails to carry any genuine weight because it comes mingled with emotions and self-pride and, of course, personal history. It may look good as we point that rocket to the moon, but after thousands of miles, we're going to miss the mark. Not because we failed to desire the moon landing or or that we were void of good intentions. No, we, we didn't miss the moon because of, of a mistake when we got there. No, we missed the moon because we were wrong when we began the journey. Second Peter 1 verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. 2 Peter 3.17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing these things beforehand, beware, lest being carried away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. And then Hebrews 6.11 says, We desire that each one of you may show the same diligence to the fullness of hope, even to the end. Obviously our God, along with the writer of the New Testament, saw clearly even then that many would begin this race and yet would not finish. When I was young, I used to run cross-country track. And cross-country is always a two-mile run, and I was never very fast, and I honestly never really expected to beat out those who ran with me. No, the personal goal within myself was just to finish the race, because you know what? A lot of guys didn't. They ran fast, but they grew tired, and they failed to complete the course. We find many folks in Scripture who no doubt began with the best of intentions, but they ultimately failed to finish. Arguably, the most famous of them all was Judas. Judas was physically in the presence of Jesus in all of his miracles for three years. He no doubt ministered, and prayed, and participated and communed with Christ, as well as with the brotherhood of believers for those three years. Yet in the end, he had a famously recorded meltdown and there is nothing in the pages of scripture to allude that he ever was a true redeemed believer or that he ultimately found his way to the eternal home of God. In a world that is seemingly holding the Christian door open wide to all who even hint to an intellectual belief, we're ignoring passages such as Matthew 7:14, which says, How narrow is the gate? and the way is restricted that leads to life, there are few who find it. And you know what the word few means in the original? It means a few. Yet statistically, 
We know that 2.2 billion people claim to be Christians today in a world population of around 7 billion. So that's nearly one in three people on the earth. And in the U.S., 159 million people claim to be Christians in a population of around 310 million. So that's more than 50% of everyone on the streets of America. So clearly, there's a large discrepancy between those who make such a claim and the clear position of Scripture. That was our daily devotions by Pastor Tim Dodson. To learn more about Tim Dodson or Believer's Church, visit jfbelievers.com.